Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Damon Burns. Damon, Damon, thank you. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. So, Damon, please yes. tell everyone how we know each other. Um, we're, we're married. That's we've, right. We've we are married for 20 years, 20 years. Oh, it's been great. Yeah. Every second a joy. Right. And every second. And we met each other in college. We worked at Subway together one summer. We were sandwich artists in a small town in Arkansas and yes. I was in music. I wasn't a music major, but I was a part of the music, the band crew, and you were a part of the art crew. And uh, the two crews didn't really commingle too much, but I think we changed that a little bit, don't you think? I think we did. I think we broke some barriers. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I know that you've heard me talk about e-discovery for 15 years, and now you're hearing me talk about things like blockchain and Web3, things like that. Which is more annoying to you, me talking about e-discovery stuff or me talking about blockchain? Hmm, probably the blockchain because I have no clue what that is. I also feel like you just aren't that interested in it either. Is that right? I mean, anytime I start talking about it, I think... Your soul leaves your body. So <laughs> is that correct? I think that's correct. Um, somewhat, yes. I take a little trip, go somewhere away. <laughs> I wasn't well versed in technology to begin with. And some of this stuff is if somebody like dumbed it way down to explain it to me, I would probably get it, but there's a lot of jargon and it's it's just over my head. Do you hear the jargon in your brain just like you don't even want to listen to it anymore? I don't hear you talk about it anymore. Um, <laughs> you don't want to hear me talk about it anymore. That's okay. all I hear. That's all. It's like, how was your day? Well, the blockchain was. That is not <laughs> completely true. Anyway, we're not here to air all of our dirty laundry to the world. But one thing we talk about, you're an artist, you paint. <clears throat> You paint with acrylics and something I've talked to you about are NFTs or non-fungible tokens and generative AI in the context of art. And I kind of like to joke, and you don't think it's very funny, that the painting behind me is one you painted for me. And yes. I asked you, uh, hey, Damon, can you, you make a painting for me based off of the Justice Tarot card, crypto punk style, I want pink and orange and purple in it. And you did that, and it's great. And I like to say you're like my own like mid-journey or dolly generative AI tool, but you don't seem to think that's very funny, do you? Um, I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, one thing that I know we've talked about is 
NFTs that are art-based NFTs. And that's, again, one you don't seem that that interested in. Can you tell me why you don't or you've you've had a lack of interest in it or think there's any value in it? Well, I'm not saying there's not value in it. It's not a value I'm interested in. I'm sure some might be. I like to have I like to have a thing there. Something I can touch and hold and put on my wall, but I also understand the the non-fungible token part of it. I'm more interested in creating the art and not I don't know, selling it or whatever. So it maybe seemed... you might find how the art, because a lot of these artists, they're, they're maybe hand-drawing elements that are then fed into an algorithm that that puts all the permutations together. Would you find that more interesting as opposed to just the tech speak? Well, it's, it's a lot of the tech speak is, is off-putting. It's like, because I just don't get it. Use it as a tool, I guess, works. I'm afraid that AI would probably end up with the sameness to everything where it's kind of boring and doesn't look good or interesting anymore. I definitely like this human element that can't really be defined in words. Well, and I think using it as a tool is interesting because it wouldn't be too far removed to say, well, Artists that are very well-known and respected, like Andy Warhol, he used his own tools. If you see maybe screen prints as an earlier version of of an algorithm, and he had, quote-unquote, a factory. That was the name of the studio, right? The factory. And he had people there helping him. He didn't necessarily create all the prints himself. He had people helping him. So... But that doesn't take away from the quality of his artwork necessarily, right? Because the right, process was that, part of it. That was that was kind of his his shtick is is mass produce these things that can have like the same thing done over and over. That was part of it. It wasn't just the the work itself. So it kind of went on into new frontiers, kind of thing. So. Right. And he would be, I think he would, Andy Warhol would love NFTs, don't you think? He probably would. He probably would. I think he would, (laughs) I think he would very much make an artwork and then have someone else make the NFT for him. Right. He was, (laughs) he was very good at delegating. I mean, and, and ultimately that's what he was able to do. He was able to scale in a way that we're able to scale now with generative AI, he was able to do that using screen prints and an iterative output of, I have all of these Marylands. And there, there are elements of scarcity even to the Maryland prints, for example. There's a, a portion of those Maryland prints that have a shot. They've been shot through, a gunshot. And yeah. those are more scarce and have a higher value to them and it was something completely unintentionally done, right? It, it wasn't something that he he planned, right? I don't I don't think he planned on that, no. <laughs> no. So can you tell what I mean, happened? Um, a woman I don't remember her name, I think went into his studio and shot his paintings with a, I believe it was a revolver or something. 
some sort of handgun. And I, I don't think it was connected with when he was shot. That was another story. But um, yeah, it just kind of a, a loony went in and did some loony stuff. Well, and I think from her <laughs> perspective, it was an art performance piece, correct? I believe so. I believe that's right. Yeah, and for anyone interested, we watch, we heard about this because there's a documentary that we have that I don't even know if you can stream. It's called How to Draw a Bunny. And there's, I don't know, you would nearly call him maybe a fringe, you know, collage artist who did a lot of performance art too. And he was with her when she went in there. And Andy Warhol wasn't happy about it. But, you know, now his paintings that were shot have made quite a quite a bit of money. Scarcity is not only is it relevant in the context of NFT projects, because, you know, they do try to designate certain attributes that occur much less frequently to therefore create varied value in those NFT projects. If that NFT project is 300 or 10,000, that's how they try to make it a little bit more interesting We've seen the same thing in art as well. And there are other artists, if we want to even look back, I I remember us being at the Kimball Art Museum, which is a European-focused art museum in Fort Worth, European artists largely. And there was a series on the painter Murillo, I think a Spanish artist, and huge painting, huge like landscape-style painting. And two older men were talking and looking at it. And one of them said, wow, Maria really captured the algorithm of 17th century artists, the light, the composition, the blah, blah, blah. The... And I was just like taking fierce notes in my, in my phone because even you can talk about favored compositions that we saw in, in the masters, that could arguably be an algorithm, as they say, they, there are certain patterns that we visually find appealing, and we've seen it. The triads, the trinities that happen in, in you know, some of those paintings, the, the Fibonacci sequence. We see these repeated patterns that our eye is drawn to. So there's a bit of a science to art, isn't there? Yes. And then I just thought of an interesting thing. You were talking about the things from the masters, the Rembrandt lighting. We have the the strong, it kind of moved into photography and became a, a solid thing in photography. Once the technology of the photography got good enough where you didn't have to just blast the light and have like a shutter that's open for an hour or whatever, then that became kind of the, the standard because it was a way to recreate that lighting effect that these old masters had already done. And it was a new thing for photography to start lighting things like Rembrandt till now it's, it's kind of a standard thing to have a backlight and. Can you explain what Rembrandt lighting, just what that general effect is? It was more like you'd have a stronger light in the front, but off to the side. So part of the face would be in shadow. And then there's multiple sources of light coming where there's like a window behind somebody shining light on the back that adds a, a small effect and then a big light, like a candle sitting in front that would 
light things rather than just having things washed out and lit from head on or just diffused lighting all around. It was more more of a making like a, a lights and darks, a chiaroscuro of, of the, the image. And it creates a bit of a visual variety, right? It's not so flat looking. Right. It, it, it adds a, a depth and, and, and a, a, a three-dimensionality to an image. I like to focus and talk about how AI at the end of the day is a tool for artists to use. And artists have been using tools forever, you know, whether yes. it's a brush or, you know. Or, or your boys and girls paint doing your. Or your boys and girls <laughs> painting in the in the factory, but even even masters had had their helpers. I mean, yes, yes. We, Michelangelo did not paint the Sistine Chapel all by himself. I don't think, right? And and even if he I he did, know. he used tools. He used in essence stencils. So right. So very old school screen prints, you could say. Right. And when we went to the Netherlands, we went to Rembrandt's house and saw his studio. He had set up and had little partitions for his students. And then at that time, you didn't order paint on the Internet. You made it your damn self. Right. <laughs> so they had to grind all the, the rocks to get the pigments and stuff. And that's just a lot of tedious work. So guess who gets to do that? The new kid. <laughs> new kid does that and then we'll go on from there so yeah even it's interesting to probably kind of rude to think of people as tools but it's not uncommon <laughs> it, it, they weren't tools of course they were assistants and maybe right. working in in different ways and again the the Sistine Chapel is an example Michelangelo is painting a ceiling that's not easy to do and no. and so what he would do is create in essence stencils with like maybe holes in it. And he would, he would draw it as he normally would. And then he would have it up on the ceiling and, and maybe with, with, I don't know, paint or something. Uh, char charcoal. Dust and, charcoal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I couldn't think, think of the word. Called, we'd get the, the shape of the image for him to then be able to paint. Correct. Right, so, right, right. So he already had, he already had it sketched out and planned out ahead of time because you couldn't just although there's places in it where you can see that he'd like redone something he didn't like a position of an arm but but in general yeah there was that and then Vermeer allegedly using his camera obscura which was kind of like a fancy projector to lay out all the because the proportions on, are just perfect you can't, maybe you could, but he probably used a tool and it was probably frowned upon at first. And I remember when I was a kid in, in like middle school doing drawings, I'd use the tracing paper and, and, oh, that was cheating. That's so that might be some of the, um, thoughts of AI is like, eh, it's cheating, but eh, not really. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> right. And I think it just goes into how much creative thought is put into by the person prior to assembly by the tool or prior to use by the tool. Uh, uh, a direct transfer from tracing paper is not going to be as transformative as 
I am creating this new, you know, composition and I'm using this tool, this maybe camera obscura to help, help make sure I like the, the position of where everything is, because maybe I have live models. We've seen people all the way back from Michelangelo with his, his outlines for sketching to ultimately paint unmistakable non-disputed masterpiece, the Sistine Chapel, on to Vermeer, again, one of the most highly, highly sought after masters. And that's an ex example of, he used the tool, but he didn't use it necessarily for mass production, because I think one reason why his paintings are so expensive is because there is yeah. scarcity overall to his entire collection. He doesn't have a large collection. He compared to maybe Rembrandt, he has double digits, I believe. And then again, on to... You know, people like Warhol. I know that we talked before about Motherwell. Yes. And you really like Motherwell. And we, we saw an exhibition or exhibit of his not too long ago. I didn't really know much about Motherwell. So can you tell us a little bit about I, him? I didn't know much about Motherwell either. I just liked his paintings. And so I went on a bit of a learning thing with that myself <laughs> and he arguably is not even painting with his own voice he's possibly being a mouthpiece for other people is that correct the uh, uh celestial <laughs> influence <laughs> you really latched onto that one i did um, i mean that's just so I, crazy to me not crazy but fascinating i should say motherwell was influenced Partly by, I think, like the Victorian times, Edgar Allan Poe was an influence for him. At that time, in the Victorian times, it was real popular. They were getting into the mesmerism craze and 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 hypnot and and uh, I forget what they call it. Seances. Seances. They'd have seances, and then one of the things that I think Poe was even kind of into was the automatic writing where you just start moving the pen on paper and kind of let the other side kind of take over. And then like they call it automatic writing. I don't know if it's so much like letting these other spirits in as it is just kind of opening your psyche and having your own subconscious come out because this was also at the time that abstract expressionism was coming along and it was more focused on not so much like a room with a lady in it it was more like how does that make you feel and it was very mood oriented i think so that kind of made an opening for being able to make a lot of paintings in a short amount of time because they weren't something that you really had to work on and use tools, like we were saying. And then that led to Warhol with his, it's like, it wasn't really so much the paintings, it was the whole idea of it. And then it's like, oh, well, just do like these screen prints of, mass-produced things to make a commentary on consumerism. So Motherwell, in essence, was opening his creative brain and just letting other celestial beings, angels, what have you, 
channel through him and help him create art, correct? Probably not that specific <laughs> nomenclature, but yeah, opening your your psychology, your 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 own from inside kind of thing. He was just painting a vibe, right? Like it was very much like a vibe. It's it's all <laughs> that's very much kind of what it is. It's a very yeah. It's a very human thing, and then it's interesting to think how we could use AI to help as a tool. If you think about the Victorian era and an increased period of introspection and, and thought of self and, and things, I would assume that the Industrial Revolution had something to do with that, and they maybe had more time on their hands, and then maybe also introspection about the conditions some people were working in. It's very likely that we'll go through a similar phase ourselves with with the AI revolution that's going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another thing like the industrialization, it kind of feels like it's infringing on humanity in a way. It's like you lose the artisanship of something. It, 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 it just becomes this mass produced thing and not like a an object that was crafted and took all this time and attention to and then the way workers are treated very dehumanizing and and it's kind of a like wait a minute no we're we're people and we're here and we have these thoughts and i think that's partly what led to modern art is is it's a reaction to that so probably be the same thing with ai and it's already been that way with computers and there's and then there's people like like me that are pretty much like I don't want to mess with computers but who knows down the road I might change my mind I hope you do I like the fact that you still paint with acrylics that you do it by hand but I think it's not like you have to give up one if you pursue the other they can they can right. work in harmony right well, hopefully I can talk you in, into you doing like a series of these tarot card paintings, not just the justice card that you did for me, but more. And maybe, you know, we could play around with associating an NFT with them or something like that, just so you can see what that experience is like. Again, because it would prove provenance. We all know, I was saying my other podcasts, we know that there's plenty of, of fraud that happens in in the traditional art world because it's very. Some people are very good at faking art, at faking work of masters, and and, and um, some of it's easier to fake too. Like the the recent on Michelle Basquiat's in Florida that were faked because that'd be kind of easy to fake because it's not a lot of work in it in like Mona Lisa it's it's painted a particular way and and it's very hard to recreate that but when you do things like color field painting and and this more modern stuff it's it's a lot looser <laughs> although well, I not... dare people to try to recreate um <laughs> Jackson Pollock cuz that's oh. <laughs> very hard to do well, you know, there's that woman, there's a documentary about it. A truck driver found a Jackson Pollock and the art elite, whatever that means, they were very opposed to the, to authenticating it. And there was some thought of like, is it just snobbery because it didn't 
get routed through one of the major galleries or something like that. But also just practically speaking, something like uh, faking a a master Rembrandt or, or a Vermeer or anything like that, just technically speaking, not even the artwork itself, just the provenance of the art itself is very hard to fake because we can look at such a granular level as to being able to find the source of the, the, the painting. And I even saw how some scientists were able to confirm that there was some sort of economic dispute between parties that, that ended trade for a period of time based off of the paints that were used by Dutch masters that for a while, an ingredient that they used for, for one of their paints was no longer available to them because of the international dispute. And they started using a different source for that color. So, um, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I've, I've been looking at, uh, my acrylic paints like why do people use naphthol red that wasn't such a big thing when i was younger that it wasn't it, most people would do with cadmium and yeah there's the the move away from cadmium being a heavy metal and and, and more toxic but why naphthol red i'm not even sure i'm pronouncing that right well it turns out that like the pigments to make these paints are of course run by industry and art is not a big industry for pigments which is surprising you'd think it would be the head industries kind of driving pigment creation is is automotive and landscaping <laughs> and um, automotive they love their Ferrari red, so that <laughs> naphthol red is a, a cheap, available pigment on the market to where the companies that want to make a red, they're going to go with that one because it's more cost effective than, say, another red that's probably harder to produce and then more scarce to produce and stuff. So that's interesting. It is side note. And then there are like there are paint color wars, the whole Vanta black, right? There's the blackest black out there. Someone developed the blackest black shade of all time. And I guess I, I I don't know, like maybe copyrighted the and he's the only one who can use it. And then there's right. another artist that got mad about it, and so he created an alternative to that but then also created like a custom pink it was like the pinkest pink ever and he named it after <laughs> that guy or something so it's uh some of that some of that gets kind of ridiculous but um yeah i've got i've got some of the the not vanta black and i don't know it's just really black but it's not that black <laughs> so well well and maybe maybe someday there will be NFTs that prove the provenance of the different different paints. Sorry, I have to bring it back to NFTs, don't I? I would love to hear what book books you're reading or anything interesting that you're kind of into right now. I, I was reading, or I'd started to read The First Ghosts. It's a book that is taking like an anthropological look at ghosts and where they come from in, in culture. Irving Finkel, The First Ghosts. 
There's actually evidence that's been entered into in a court case in the 1800s of a ghost testimony, if you can believe it. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Damon. I appreciate it. If you can hear that in the background, that is Zuzu crying. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of Cassie and Damon and also Zuzu, who's obviously joined us. So thank you very much. (laughs) 